Welcome to Tiny Voice Talks with me, Toria Bono. And today, Tiny Voice is talking all about invisible illness. I am chatting to someone that I discovered um, talking at Diverse Ed about a month ago. I cannot tell you how hard it has been for us to actually find a time, get microphones working, get headphones working and actually record this. So I am in my element because today I have Yasmin Omar, Omar with me. Yay! Yeah. Hi, Toria. Hi, Yasmin. How are you? I am very well, thank you. How about you? Yeah, if only the listeners, Yasmin, knew the amount of text messages that have been exchanged between us and the amount of difficulties yeah. we've actually had. Yes, that was really tough. Yeah, honestly, it, even the earphones I'm using today are not the ones that I usually use. I usually have wireless headphones. So it's all been quite an experience, but I'm really glad to be here. I'm really excited to be chatting with you. Now, I discovered you, as I said, when you were actually a speaker at Diverse Ed about a yes. month ago but yes. for anyone that doesn't know who Yasmin Amar is who is Yasmin Amar? So I am a secondary school science teacher um, I was born and raised in West London and I now work in the London Borough of Newham at a school called Lister Community School in Plasto. Wow so actually that yeah I always do you know what whenever I speak to a science teacher in secondary I always think goodness you must be so clever <laughs> oh thank you in all honesty science um at school wasn't even it genuinely wasn't my favorite subject I also remember having the impression at school that you know people who were you know loved science must be really clever um I was actually much more of a humanity student right the way up to mm-hmm. a level um and yeah I've noticed a lot of people do a lot of teachers do make that comment in schools you know they always mm. say they find science departments intimidating and you know that they have this reputation for some reason that, that it's it's clever well I'm a grown-up who still doesn't understand the water of crystallization I have no <laughs> clue and and it's one of those things that to this day I wouldn't I don't know that I'm ever going to fully understand it so, you, know, you know you know what's funny Toria um I always watch the chase on ITV at 5 p.m yeah. and um I have noticed that generally speaking most people in the general public never know answers to science questions <laughs> even when they're things we teach in you know to year sevens and year eights mm. they it, there's just always that hesitance and people tend to not be able to answer science questions and I find that really quite amusing to be honest I'm quite glad that I'm a science teacher yeah the the one thing I can the only questions that I can answer to do science are the periodic table oh yes because that just appeared I think it's because it appealed to my love of English and language and that's why the periodic table like I could learn but beyond that not a hope really Honestly, honestly. Yeah, the periodic table is it's a really nice um, part of chemistry. A lot of children really like it as well, because Mm. it's quite different in that, you know, there are symbols, there's a whole table that you can see at once. uh, There's lots of different things to say about the table. So yeah, a a lot of people do like I genuinely really enjoy teaching the periodic table. It's definitely one of the more interesting (laughs) parts of science. Absolutely. And I shall tell you, I'm going to tell you a story that I've never told anyone actually has grown up. Oh, great. Um, so I know this is your podcast, but I'm going to tell you my story. No, honestly, now this is a true story. Okay. When I was four, 
My dad set me down on a chair in what was called the sunroom. It was just a tiny room that had the sun coming into it. So we called it the sunroom. I'm not right. sure. Yeah. And he put, a, uh, a, it was a blackboard in front of me. He got his, the chalk out and he drew what I now know as an atom. Wow. And inside, I know, inside he drew the nucleus and the protons and the electrons. And um, yeah. And, and he was, number one, very disappointed that I didn't understand that concept at the age of four. <laughs> and, and number two, that I was always in school quite a failed scientist, that I never rose to the dizzy heights of doing incredibly well. I passed my GCSE science, at, you know, bi- I did biology and chemistry. I passed them. But, you know, I never really got it and to him this was just you know what why would you not I sat you down at the age of four in front of the blackboard and I taught you about atoms so yes that that's really interesting and it goes to show you know I think everyone (laughs) does have subjects that they're naturally you know people are more inclined to certain subjects over others and I have noticed a lot of people um feel that they don't do particularly well in science but you know having said yourself that you passed you know that does show that you were you know, better better at science than you might even think, really. Yeah, I suppose so. I, yeah, absolutely. So back to you now, we've talked about me for a bit. You said that you didn't have a deep love for science at school, per se, but th- how did becoming a science teacher come about then? So, um, I mean, yeah, as I was saying, even at A-level, I'm, I was pretty much a humanities student. I did history and sociology and um, biology for A-level. Mm-hmm. And I, I really loved, I loved science, but um, it wasn't my favorite subject and it wasn't the subject that I was best at. And, you know, even leaving school, I wasn't, I I thought teaching was a very interesting career. It was certainly something I was interested in, but how things happened for me was um, when I went to university, I, I planned to take a gap year, but because I was from an ethnic group that was highlighted by Ofsted as being the lowest achieving ethnic group in the borough um, I got in touch with and well I was in touch with an organization in the area in the Ealing area where I grew up and they offered me a full-time job when I had planned actually to take a gap year post uni wow. and I ended up staying there for two years and working with children on the periphery of exclusions and you know I got to work in a lot of schools and meet a lot of teachers and you know I ultimately that's what inspired me to go into teaching and because I had a science degree it just made the most sense you know, that I would be a science teacher, but I am really glad that in the end that I did end up going into teaching and sometimes I do wish I'd just done it straight away. Yeah, but that job must have really felt very impactful, actually, if you were, you know, working with children that were at risk of exclusion and so on. Yeah, it was It was very, I mean, I had to learn a lot very quickly. I had mm. no particular training of any form. Um, you know, I, it was a job where I was learning on the job and, you know, I had to be an advocate for a lot of people. There were a lot of things I learned to do really well that I had never, you know, known anything about. You know, I didn't even know a lot of my own rights growing up. Um, you know, I, I had to learn a lot about the law very quickly. I had to learn how mm-hmm. to advocate for children in exclusions. You know, I used to find myself head to head with head teachers and senior leadership teams and governors wow. all the time. And um, obviously maintained a good relationship with everyone. It wasn't anything, um, you know, it wasn't. It's the kind of situation where you, I was advocating for people, but at the same time, I was still building relationships with yeah. the schools, despite you know representing children they intended to exclude. 
And um, yeah, honestly, it was very difficult. I got to know a lot about even magistrates, the CPS. I visited children in prison. It was um, honestly a really, really insightful job that has really changed my perception and shaped my teaching personality also. It, it really must have. And I think, you know, hats off to you really for, for ta- undertaking that and, Thank and you. putting yourself in a situation where you, you know, you, you were willing to learn so much and actually have those conversations, which must have been challenging at times, you know, but as you say, you were advocating for children and uh, yeah, really powerful. Yeah, thank you very much, Toria. So tell me about training NQT. Was it just sort of normal? Was it just, you know, flowed, flowed easily? So I would say, honestly, the furthest from normal, I feel like I've had one of the most dramatic PGC stories ever. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, when I started my PGCE, I was at the Institute of Education, UCL, and yeah. um, two months in, I just went blind in my right eye, having, you know, already Gosh. passed occupational health, never had any prior medical conditions. I mean, the worst thing that had ever happened to me was that I was allergic to penicillin and, you know, I once got like a rash on my face because of it. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's all. That's the most, as far as things went for me um, as a child. And I found myself unable to see out of my right eye and was told that I had a medical condition called optic neuritis. And Mm -hmm. um, I couldn't see, I remember for a whole month, so for the whole of November, I couldn't see properly out of my right eye. And in the end, um, was told that this isn't, you know, a random occurrence. And generally it happens to people that have a neurological condition known as MS. And then I began to be tested for it. And right at the end of my PGCE, so in July of 2018, I was given a confirmed diagnosis in the same week that I actually got qualified teacher status. Um, So, yeah, that was really, really a crazy year. Oh, my goodness. So multiple sclerosis. Yes. The end of PGCE year. Yeah. And if you don't mind me asking, what age were you? I was, I had just turned 24. So I was 23 when um, I couldn't see out of my eye. I had a birthday in between that and the confirmed diagnosis, but really and truly, I knew the whole time. So I knew within two months of starting my PGC, I knew that I was going to get an MS diagnosis at the end. Wow. Um, it's, it's hard to formulate a question on the back of that because... Th- I sort of want to ask you how you felt when you got the diagnosis. Honestly, um, I just remember because it was so quick, you know, it's a huge yeah. diagnosis. And with MS, most of the time, it's actually quite the opposite scenario to, to me. Um, it's people that have had loads of different you know, weird symptoms over the years, over different parts of their body. And, you know, it's not all been linked to having been caused by the same underlying condition. Whereas for me, it was a complete bolt out of the blue. You know, I didn't have a family member with MS. I didn't know anybody with MS. I certainly didn't think when I was starting my PGCE that I would, you know, have a diagnosis that serious at the end of it. It was all very... um, despite, you know, taking the most part of a year, I found it very, very quick. And I just remember feeling quite indifferent at first. I just thought, well, you know, 
I understand MS. It's actually something I studied at uni. I still have the notes where I wrote about multiple sclerosis and actually found it quite interesting and looked it up a lot when I was at uni. I just thought at the time, well, I know a lot about science and my body is totally fine at the moment. So, you know, let me just focus on all the things that are going right with my body as opposed to the things that might not. So I didn't want to worry at first because it was genuinely hypothetical at the time in the sense that I hadn't had any relapses. So I thought, you know, I'm going to keep it that way. That was my plan. And did you get a teaching job straight away and just go for it? Or did you take time out once you'd had the diagnosis? So I had the teaching job offer. So if I go back to when I had the optic neuritis, I recovered from that very quickly. Um, And, you know, I was told to return for an outpatient's appointment months later. So in that time that I recovered, I mean, I was told at the time, there's a, you know, very high chance, I think above 80% chance that you have that this is caused by a neurological condition, but they said something like there's a 5% chance it's just clinically isolated. And I remember actually saying to the doctor, well, you know, I'm tired of being extraordinary. And by that, I meant, you know, I must be in that 5% then, you know, that had this by accident. And um, so when I recovered really quickly, I ended up applying for um, an NQT role on the other end of London. And so I had the job offer before the confirmed diagnosis so when I'd applied for a job I didn't actually consider myself to have a disability whereas by the time I was starting I did. And how how is it going from because multiple sclerosis is classed as a disability? Yes. Did did that did you have that understanding that you have gone from not having a disability to having a disability or was it was that not something you consciously thought about so honestly before that I had no idea I didn't know much about the Equality Act I did know it existed um I did know what protected characteristics were particularly the other ones um the other protected characteristics outside of disability but I genuinely didn't did not know until around the time I was starting my NQT that um MS HIV and cancer are considered disabilities right from the point of diagnosis because of their progressive nature. I didn't know and I didn't know how to, I didn't really know how to reconcile that as part of my identity. And, you know, that's one of the things I have found hardest with MS or I did at the time anyway, was, you know, kind of going from somebody um, completely able-bodied with no medical conditions to then not only accepting, you know, a, a progressive condition and and your the diagnosis but also then you know viewing yourself as somebody with a disability and understanding how to navigate that with people um it's is something that i did find quite difficult at first understandably and <clears throat> how so i'm going to move on to you started that job and did you have, have you had any relapses and if so what happens and and how does that impact on you as a teacher? Oh yeah so um, I mean it was my biggest fear. I remember when I was starting my um, NQT the only thing I was scared of was a relapse you know I didn't know what it would look like. I knew that Mm. there was a chance you wouldn't recover if you have relapse so you know naturally I wanted to do everything in my power to avoid it but um, yeah, I did have a very difficult um, entry into teaching and six months in from my diagnosis, so from July 2018, so 
in January of 2019, I had a significant relapse. It's actually the only one I've had since, really. Um, I woke up one day and I just couldn't feel my entire left side. So from if you put your hands on your hip, I couldn't feel from my left hand down. So I couldn't feel my left hip. I couldn't feel my entire leg. Um, I remember when I'd put shoes on, I could feel it on my right foot, but not on my left. So um, it's very interesting. Again, it's because I understand the science behind it. Um, There are different nerves. So I ended up basically having a spinal cord relapse. And what that means is from the point of your spine, so in my case, Mm. the spine is split into three areas. I think the cervical, thoracic, and then the lumbar spine. So okay, um, just just for someone that doesn't know those things, cervical is which bit? So it's the top bit um, at and the neck, the is, base of the neck. And then lumbar is the bottom the bottom. Bit? So okay. you know, if someone's had like a lumbar puncture, that's where it comes from. Oh, it's quite low down. You're talking your to back. someone that it doesn't necessarily have the biology understanding. <laughs> <laughs> no, no worries at all. And and um, you know, that's another thing I love about teaching is that I can break down a mess in a yeah. way that people can understand. Um, and so the thoracic spine is the part in the middle. So if you yeah. just split your spine into three. So what happens when you have a spinal cord relapse is you lose, you can lose all the body parts that are affected, are the body parts below the area that's damaged in your spine. Wow. So in my case, it was the thoracic. So just imagine just right in the middle of your back, like the part yeah. where if you bend your hand backwards, you kind of struggle to touch. So that kind of area of your back um, is where my lesion was. And that's why from my hip down, I couldn't feel my leg. But then at the same time, you have nerves that control movement. There are nerves that control senses. So the only nerves in my body that were affected were the ones that control senses. So if I touched my leg, I couldn't feel it. However, I could still walk. Wow. Which confused a lot of people really and truly. A lot of people are confused by that. So actually, when we come to that, you know, when we talk about invisible illness, yes, actually, that's really invisible because to to anyone looking at you, you're walking around. It's like, well, what's the problem? Yeah, exactly that. And even for me, you know, I mean, I I do, as I said, understand the science, but when you experience it, it's really different. I just I thought it was so strange that I could walk, but I couldn't feel my leg at all must have been utterly bizarre yeah so did you take time off from teaching at that point did you did uh, did you need to did you carry on did you talk to people or did you just keep it in your you know keep it to you so I came into school every day um I was a bit off kilter when I was walking the pupils noticed as Mm. did um, a lot of the staff and I ended up starting to walk with crutches because I was always scared that I'd fall over um I honestly came into school every single day with the exception of two days where I went to um, hospital to get steroids treatment, which is how MS is often treated or how MS relapses are often treated. Mm. And um, yeah, I was in every single day. I didn't really know who to talk to at that point. I didn't really know anyone else that had MS. Um, Yeah. And I didn't feel like the people around me understood. I Actually, the people I found the most supportive were my pupils themselves. They really supported me. I remember I had a year 10 class where, I mean, generally speaking, I worked in a school where the children were very well behaved anyway. But mm-hmm. I remember in particular having a set one year 10 class where um, 
you know, I actually told all my pupils at that point when I was on the crutches, I used to make jokes sometimes and say things like, oh, you know, it's a knee injury because I was supposed to be a professional footballer, not a teacher. <laughs> you know, I'd always make jokes about it. But um, I did tell all of my classes that I had MS. And at that point when I had a relapse and um, I remember if anyone spoke in the class or if anyone wasn't paying attention, I remember there was a few people sat at the front that would turn around and say, shush you know, miss has MS, remember? And everyone would fall silent. And, you know, I just used to find it so endearing and hilarious, you know, that they always had my medical condition at the forefront of their mind. Mm. And it was something that, I mean, they wouldn't know it, they were just 14, but they were a huge um, moral support for me at the time. I, I genuinely adored the peoples I used to teach at that time. It's amazing. So how long did it take to, to, sort of get over that relapse have you got feeling back now in your legs yeah so um in the end um it was just you know very difficult I just didn't feel supported in that school environment and um I had to go on sick leave eventually mm. and um so a month after coming in school every day my leg just started to get worse and the steroids yeah. treatment hadn't worked and um I had to go to quite vigorous physiotherapy and you know they were trying to get me off the crutches and they wanted to change me onto a foldable walking stick so one that I could fold and carry in my bag um but I didn't want that I, I just wanted my walking ability back obviously I was willing to accept it if that was going to be the case but mm. you know they gave me a set of exercises to do and I used to do them every single day at home um Every single day, I would just do those exercises again and again and again, just, you know, walking up one step down, back down the step, um, turning, trying to balance on one leg, just a series of exercises they gave me, a, a few worksheets, and I would just constantly do it. And um, in the end, I ended up making a full recovery from my relapse in, I think, August of 2019. Yeah. So the, it took me over half the year to... Wow. you know, be off the crutches fully and to have recovered and then went into remission, which I've stayed in since. And talk to me about remission. So does remission from multiple sclerosis mean you're perfectly fine like everyone else? So what it means is that you don't have any active relapses. There isn't, um, you don't have any, yeah, so you don't have any active relapses. However, you can have residual disability from previous relapses. In my case, I didn't. Um, and on top of that, you can still go on to have MRI scans that show um, increasing brain activity. So every time you have an MRI, it could be the case that you still have lesions or, you know, there is some sort of activity, but it isn't necessarily causing relapses. Mm. in which case I think you would still be considered to be in remission. However, in my case, I haven't got any residual disability and I haven't had any changes in my MRI scans. I've just had completely stable MRI scans for coming up to two years now. Um, so I'm in, I think, what's considered a complete remission. I think that's what it's called. Which is amazing. But Thank you. I know from talking to you and texting you over these months where we've tried to get together that actually you do suffer from fatigue and you do suffer from migraines yeah you know so yeah. actually when you're saying that you 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 know you're 
you're perfectly well as such actually that it is different would you agree yeah absolutely so with ms you know um, remission yeah it's all good and well but it's true you will always have these sort of background things that you kind of just grow used to. You grow used yeah. to having a new normal. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Fatigue is just something that never goes. It's something that does in many ways kind of control how I choose to live my day. You know, I always take fatigue into account when I'm, um, you know, p- planning a day or a week you know, mm. I'm so thankful that I'm able to work full time in teaching. I have a full timetable, but I do always make sure that I, you know, sleep early, that I don't have too many activities that I'm either doing after school or on weekends so that I can make sure I have enough energy for my, you know, full timetable and so that I can be completely alert somewhere like school and, you know, give it my all every single week. It, um, and also migraines. Yeah, I have. Although I, you know, I developed migraine around the same time as MS and it's considered a separate condition. However, it's a lot more common in people with MS. So it is, you know, it's considered comorbid yet at the same time. A lot of people with MS do suffer from migraine and I'm certainly one of them. And um, I, when I first developed migraine, I struggled with them a lot. I was put on so many different medications and then eventually that also quieted down for, you know, about two, three years now, maybe. Um, but recently, as of about January 2021, they've come back and I, I don't really know exactly why, mm. but they've come back and I've really been struggling with migraine um, lately and I'm back on medication for it. And, you know, it's very, very debilitating and it is, yeah, as you said, Um, you know, part of my MS and a reminder of MS a lot of the time. Even last week, actually, I got the AstraZeneca vaccine last weekend and I had the worst migraine I have ever had after that vaccine last week. Yeah. And and as you know, I completely relate. I I don't have multiple sclerosis. I do have um, a significant underlying condition and I completely relate to the fatigue and, and to also the migraines. And what and this is one of the reasons why when you were talking on Diverse Ed, it really resonated with me because you were talking about that invisible illness and the fact that people can't see it, but it's still going on. And I think fatigue is one of those things that it's so difficult for anyone that doesn't suffer from fatigue to understand what it's like. Because Absolutely. Because it is debilitating. Yeah. Absolutely. A lot of people think, um, you know, fatigue is the kind of tiredness. Everyone, every adult or every person rather has experienced some sort of tiredness at Mm. some point. But the difference between tiredness and fatigue is fatigue isn't something that lends itself to rest. So, Mm. you know, you could have had a 10 hour sleep and you can wake up tired like you've not slept for, you know, four nights in a row or something. And, you know, that's not something it's the baseline is one where or it's a threshold where a lot of people can't cross, you know, you, you generally speaking, you have to have some sort of disorder or medical condition to be able to cross into that fatigue threshold, because, you know, it's not something that lends itself to rest. And I think that's the key that a lot of people don't realize, you know, they think, oh, yeah, so am I, you know, I'm tired too, when really, tiredness and fatigue aren't the same thing. Yeah. And for me, I, I suffer from chronic basically it's chronic daily migraines I always have a headache always it never goes and you know if I ever what I found was if I ever said to anyone that I had a headache or migraine they'd all go oh yeah you know I get those and I think I don't know that you have one all the time yeah (laughs) yeah actually I don't I don't know about you 
But I began to to stop talking about the fatigue and the headaches because actually I just, I didn't need people to say, oh, yeah, yeah, me too. Because I think, well, actually, do you actually really on, you know, maybe, maybe they did. But it, it, I found that was the common response from a lot of people. Yeah, um, ob- absolutely. I can totally understand that. A lot of people do, you know, I think it's human nature a lot of the time to want to yeah. relate to what people are saying. <laughs> it is. And it is quite difficult sometimes when you've got a chronic version of a condition and, you know, people are able to kind of dip in and out of it and say, yeah, you know, I felt that or I feel like that today as well. And when, you know, you know what you're referring to isn't the same thing. But, you know, I, I totally get what you mean there. I know you do. And that's why, as I say, when I heard you speak, it was so refreshing. Now, something else that I just wanted to touch on that we talked about in a previous conversation was disability and actually the the disability badges, because you were sharing with me about your blue badge and parking in disabled spots with your blue badge and the way people would look at you. Yep. So in that year that I had a really bad relapse. Um, I remember thinking, well, I used to advocate for people a lot of the time in Mm. the council. Why don't I advocate for myself? You know, I found myself really scared to leave my house. I would never go out, you know, in the morning or in the afternoon because I would be scared that I'd go to a bus stop or I'd try to get on a train and there would be no seat for me. And I knew that I couldn't stand, I couldn't balance in a moving vehicle you know I just couldn't balance and but you know if you looked at me I was like the picture of health I look very young I do not look like I you know I didn't look like somebody who had mobility issues or who just couldn't feel like the whole left side of their body and so I just found myself not going out and I remember I thought well I know that I've I'd done loads of blue badge applications for people that I considered having disabilities in the past before I was in teaching and I thought you know what why don't I do one for myself? And I did. And it got accepted, which even then, I, even then, you know, the imposter syndrome, I kind of felt a bit surprised. And I started to use it. And at the time that I was using it, I really needed it. It made such a big difference for me. I wouldn't be scared to go to Tesco's. I wouldn't be scared to go out because I knew that I would be able to find somewhere to park. And, you know, it really helped me with my confidence at the time. And Anytime I parked in a blue badge spot, people would look at me, you know, like they're scanning you, trying to see, you know, well, what is it that entitles you to this blue badge? And obviously, because they couldn't see anything, there is that kind of insecurity where you think, are people thinking that, you know, I'm breaking the law? Do they think that I'm using someone else's blue badge? Do they think maybe I've taken, you know, a blue badge that might belong to my parents or my grandparents or someone else? You know, I did feel that glare from people a lot of the time. And so it was an added thing that sometimes would make me feel like, oh, well, I don't know if I want to go out today. You know, I don't want, I don't know if I feel like, you know, having to deal with people staring at me today. And, you know, the one thing it did teach me was disability is synonymous with the logo, the wheelchair logo. Yeah, most disabilities, actually, I think over 70% of them are not physical. And, you know, to me, I just feel like there should be some sort of update on the logo to kind of include or acknowledge that disability the most of the time is actually invisible absolutely and it was when you said that to me and I thought that makes so much sense because it is the the, you know the disability sign is the one with the wheelchair on and yet and and I couldn't quite believe that figure 70 percent 
Yeah. And not, it was just like, wow, just shocking. Yeah. The other thing I want to talk to you about is your heritage and, and actually growing up, um, in a community that didn't necessarily trust Western medicine. Is that the best way to put it? Uh, somewhat, yeah. So it's it, it's not always just the medicine. It's yeah. um, also just, you know, healthcare workers um, and, you know, the fact that a lot of the people that work in the NHS wouldn't be people they'd physically be able to relate to or on a cultural mm-hmm. level. So, but yeah, I do, I do understand. Yeah. And so for, for our listeners, what was your heritage and what, you know, what, what what's the the understanding there about Western medicine? Yeah. So um, ethnically, I'm Somali. Uh, the Somali community uh, predominantly moved to the UK, I believe, post the civil war outbreak in Somalia mm-hmm. in 1991, though there were many um, communities, particularly um, from Somaliland, that had already been in England for and Wales for quite some time, I believe. Um, but just, just generally speaking, a lot of Somalis moved to the country in the 1990s. However, um, both my parents came from um, Italy and Switzerland, I believe, and moved to the UK as my dad was offered a job here at the BBC. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was born here. They they mm-hmm. were here quite early. And um, what I have learned from the Somali community, a lot of the time, you know, there is some sort of hesitance um, that there is a lot of taboo around medical conditions for starters. A lot of people yeah. don't openly discuss disability. I remember when I decided to go public with my MS diagnosis, there was a lot of criticism from just people I knew. You know, we call them aunties you know it's just a respectful term for people in the neighborhood or people that you've just grown up around that are older than you that you you know have a natural respect for and I did face a lot of criticism where people were saying why are you talking about that and um, you know a a lot of the time people associate uh, medical conditions with infertility if it's something that affects women they just automatically assume you know that it must mean you can't have children or you know there's something wrong with you and you know um I have felt I have felt a lot of you know criticism from people. I mean, it's not bothered me at all. In all honesty, I'm very happy mm. to be open about my MS. I know you know a lot of people message me. I would go as far as saying probably close to a hundred people with MS that live in the UK that are from the same community as me have messaged me, and wow. most of them don't share their diagnosis and have been encouraged by their families to not share it with people. So, you know, a lot of people do message me all the time. I don't like to like, you know, gloat about direct messages because, you know, they are private messages for a reason. But I mean, you know, it kind of was an insight for me into how disability and how medical conditions are perceived. But, I, you know, more recently, I remember you even telling me you saw on the news, you know, a lot of Somali mm. communities um, where people were knocking on their doors, encouraging them to take up the COVID vaccine. So, you know, that's another example. It's not just it's not just the Somali community that it affects, but, you know, this vaccine hesitancy recently in 2021 has been a really good example of, you know, people's hesitance when it comes to certain things and I think genuinely it just comes from a misunderstanding of you know statutory services available to us in the UK I think if there had been better facilitation and better links drawn between communities and things like healthcare um, you know the police etc I think people would 
understand things better and be more likely to take it up. So there are people I follow on Twitter. For example, I follow a GP um, in Leicester called Dr. Samira Hassan, and she has really worked tirelessly this year to encourage Somalis to take up the COVID vaccine opportunity. And, you know, I have seen that she's made a massive difference in the Somali community. That's amazing. And actually, yeah, that news story, because it was, I remember talking, I talked to you the day after I watched it, it as, as, as it, for me, as luck would have it, because the news story itself wasn't incredibly, I would say it wasn't well reported. It showed two nurses in Bath door knocking people in the Somali, they were, they were Somali and two people, you know, and they were door knocking people in the Somali community to encourage them to have the vaccine. But they didn't, what they didn't say, was why they were having to encourage. And that was what I loved from our conversation because I began to understand the why. I could see what they were doing, but I didn't understand the why. And it was really useful having your insight. Oh, thank you. But yeah, I really, yeah, I remember when you were telling me that when we last spoke, you know, you were saying you saw on the news that people were being encouraged to take up the vaccine, but you didn't understand why. And, that, you know, I really thought, actually, that does make sense. How many, Obviously, I know that, you know, I understand as someone who's an ethnic minority, I understand mm. if people, there's someone knocking on someone's door to telling them to get the COVID vaccine, it's probably because they're quite reluctant to do so in the first place. Um, but, you know, when I spoke to you, I did realise, actually, they should make that more clear on the news because yeah. there might be people who will misconstrue that or they might think, well, actually, what if the Somali community have higher COVID rates than others? Or, you know, what if they're, people that what if a lot of people from these particular communities have a lot of coronavirus and that's why a lot of people are knocking on their door you know a lot of people could misunderstand that and I did actually go on to tell people what you'd shared with me that day and I thought actually yeah this should be framed differently on the news but that was really interesting yeah I think this is why I love having conversations with lots and lots of different people because Actually, I learn so much, but I'm also able to ask the questions and find out. And, you know, and I don't know. I don't know if that's something that lots of people are doing or whether they're just because that news story I found was incredibly narrow and could have been perceived in many, many ways. Yeah, yeah, honestly, Toria. And I really appreciate actually that you've, you know, made a podcast and you go on to interview lots of different people and ask lots of different questions. You know, I love your curiosity and that you try to find out things that, you know, might be different to your worldview and your experiences. I think it's honestly commendable. Thank you. Thank you. I think I recognise now, I've, I've been doing a lot of work over the last year, and I recognise now that, number one, I'm in a very privileged position, and I don't have the lived experience. I've got, I've had my lived experience, which is different from everyone else's. But I want to find out about everyone else's lived experiences. And what I've found is that lots of people are terrified of asking why questions they're terrified of getting those questions wrong. They're terrified, like disability, they're worried about saying the wrong thing around disability. So they don't have the conversations. And actually, I want to have those conversations so that hopefully it will help the listeners to just go, ah, yes, okay, and just give them a bit of courage to have the conversations, if that makes any sense. Oh, it makes complete sense. I feel like in some ways I'm the same when it comes to sharing my MS. 
Um, mm. You know, I don't want people to feel like there's any wrong questions you can ask. You know, people yeah. have asked me before, for example, is MS contagious? I've had yes. all sorts of questions and I'd rather people ask them than think or, you know, never find the answers to what I think everyone should know. And, you know, I totally understand. I, I wish people weren't so hesitant to ask questions. I don't think it's a bad thing to have a different lived experience to others and to want to explore it mm. or to admit that you might not understand. You know, I don't think that's an issue. Even, you know, even though I have a chronic disability, I don't feel like I understand every disability or I can speak on every condition. Mm. And, you know, there might be, there are many conditions actually that overlap with the symptoms that I have. Yeah, I wouldn't expect myself to just automatically understand even you for example when you shared your um, medical condition with me it wasn't one that I knew much about and I remember looking it up you know mm. and I wish that it could be more something more accepted that people it's okay to not always know everything and to have to or to want to go and learn from others absolutely oh do you know what you you are a joy to talk to utterly refreshing you really are Yasmin I'm so grateful that we finally got together now my final question that I always ask everyone is if you could have been taught by anyone at all they can be living they can be dead who would have been your perfect teacher I think um in my case um it's quite easy for me I would say Paul Sinner from The Chase (laughs) Um, <laughs> and I, I know and he's alive reason? and well so my reason is um he is an amazing quiz I'm really into quizzes general knowledge I always do stuff like that all the time um he I would pick him because um he is someone who's um, who's got amazing general knowledge so sharp so clever um at the same time he used to be a GP so he's somebody that trained in a career and then you know made the brave decision to quit to pursue his um his his other interests which were basically um quizzing and comedy and then on top of that also got a Parkinson's disease which you know is a neurological condition just like I have a neurological condition he's also got one and um you know to see him on television all the time on national television in front of the whole country you know having to use the same organ of his that's injured you know his brain and you know rely on his sharp skills and his sharp thinking and his reflexes to me is really inspirational you know to see someone with a neurological condition who comes onto television every day to use their brain for me is like I feel really inspired by Paul Sinner in a way that I can't even describe honestly so it would have to be him yeah I laughed initially but wow wow (laughs) I totally and utterly get why he would be your perfect teacher yeah Yasmin for those out there that are listening that want to get in contact with you what's the best way to connect with you if they've got any questions about MS or they just want to share with you about their MS Definitely my Twitter. I don't really use any other social media platform. Um, I've been on there since secondary school. Um, my handle is at Yasmomar, so Y-A-S-M-O-M-A-R. Um, I do always respond to uh, tweets and stuff. So, yeah, if anyone wants to get in contact with me, I'll, they can find me there. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for talking about your MS and the impacts of having an invisible illness. No, thank Lovely you, Toria. To you. And you, Toria, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. It's been lovely talking to you too.